when times are tough, people can really not afford to pay for the truth, even though they'd like to have the knowledge of what happened to their loved ones. They do not have sufficient funds to secure the services of a private investigator. Fred van der Feyfer was 22 years old when he was arrested for the murder of his girlfriend, Inga Lotz. Inga was savagely bludgeoned to death in her Stellenbosch apartment on the 16th of March, 2005. Within weeks, police zoned in on Fred as their prime suspect. Fred's family would conduct their own investigations in a bid to prove the innocence of their son. The family farm was sold and a worldwide search for the truth began. In the third episode of the Engelot story, A Miscarriage of Justice, myself, Catherine Rice, and co-producer Matthew Brown uncover the cost of trying to establish the true facts behind this chilling murder. The average person in South Africa probably has got access only to the legal aid uh, lawyers, the sort of state defense which is a very good and well-run organization, but there are far too few of them. They are trying to cover too many, too many trials. Um, they don't have the same resources as the prosecution, because a lot of people obviously cannot afford private lawyers. A lot of people cannot afford to bring in witnesses and expert witnesses from overseas and so on and build up a huge defense team if they're lucky if they get five minutes with their um, defense lawyer before the trial. Nusheen Ofani Gudimi, the former director of the Witz Justice Project, says the odds are stacked against those who can't afford a proper defense. For Fred, this would not be the case. His family was able to raise the money needed to hire expensive lawyers and to consult globally respected experts to carry out the necessary analysis of key forensic evidence. Fred's father, Louis van der Feyfer, would also hire his own private detective, Daryl Else. Daryl was a policeman for decades, as well as the lead investigator for the Eastern Cape Department of the Hawks, a special police unit. But he was medically discharged after several heart attacks and turned to private investigation work. His weather-beaten face and lanky gray hair, testament to a tough life, a life pursuing the most violent criminals in South Africa. His health problems left an air of vulnerability about him. Since this interview was conducted, a final heart attack took his life in 2017. I found that uh, the murder had been one of passion, having caused numerous wounds, I don't ever think that uh, Louis van der Feyver thought that his son was involved. All that he was looking for was an outsider to confirm his beliefs in his son's innocence. 
Fundafay for Family would broaden their search for independent experts, and that's how they would come to meet top American fingerprint expert Pat Vertime. He had made his name through fingerprint identification. Several years ago, Matthew Brown, co-producer of this series, flew to Atlanta to meet him. They met at an airport hotel. Matthew said it was like meeting a character out of a Southern American detective novel. Pat was dressed in a suit with cowboy boots and a tie that said, don't mess with Texas. He had a quiet authority. This was a man who had worked on hundreds of high-profile cases. I worked on the Jackson Pollock case, which is a uh, case of fingerprint forgery rather than fabrication. When potential buyers of a multi-million dollar Jackson Pollock painting became concerned about its authenticity, they turned to Pat. He was able to show how easy it was to fabricate fingerprint evidence. In that case, a Jackson Pollock fingerprint could clinch a sale for more than $100 million. Pollock had died in 1956, and his paintings had rocketed in value. But as Pat would prove, the painting may have looked like a Jackson Pollock, but simply having his print on it was not enough to authenticate it. The Pollock fingerprint had actually been lifted from a paint can at the Jackson Pollock Museum on Long Island, New York the fingerprint actually did exist on the painting, but Jackson Pollock had never touched the painting. During the Inga Lotz case, the fingerprint lifted off the DVD cover would become known as Folian 1. The term Folian is used in South Africa to describe a lift taken on what I would call a rubber lifter or a gel lifter as opposed to a white lift card or a piece of paper. Folian 1 was a black gel lifter, which was uh, represented as having come from a DVD cover. The powder supposedly used was aluminum powder to dust the fingerprints. So in a process to develop a fingerprint like that, one would very lightly dust the surface being examined with the aluminum powder and if a fingerprint was observed, then one would take the folian and peel the backing off of it so that the adhesive or gel side was available to lift the powder. And then very carefully apply the gel lifter to the surface and lift it, which would then remove the powder and the shape of the powder, in other words, the fingerprint. But there was an immediately obvious problem with the fingerprint. My first thought when I saw the fingerprint was that, well, this didn't come from a DVD cover, it came from a, a drinking glass, but I believed that there must be a logical explanation, some kind of a mix-up. Fred was known to have been at Inga's apartment, so most likely I thought perhaps he drank from a glass in the apartment, and in dusting and lifting the prints, one of them simply got mislabeled. That was my first thought that two lifts have been mixed up. And there were 11 lifts in the case. So my next step was to examine the other uh, 10 lifts to see if one of those was labeled as having come from a drinking glass, which could have come from a DVD cover instead. Vertime was also puzzled by the number of fingerprints that had been lifted from the crime scene. 
I've processed a number of murder scenes myself, and when an entire residence, even a small residence, is the scene of a murder, I expect to leave with dozens or possibly hundreds of latent print lifts. Uh, the finding of fingerprints on only six surfaces for a grand total of 11 fingerprints was highly suspect. There should have been far more surfaces fingerprinted in my opinion. I would have expected to have found fingerprints on most of the door frames in the house, on the edges of the doors, on the toilet seat cover, uh, the toilet seat itself, and had a competent job been done, far more latent print lifts would have been produced. Lack of fingerprints aside, the fingerprint from the DVD cover was the key to the case against Fred. But as soon as Vertime examined it, glaring problems jumped out. When I looked at Folian 1, several things struck me. First of all, the edges of a DVD cover are perfectly straight. And yet, on Folian 1, it was apparent that two edges of the surface from which the lift was made were both curved, and the curves were parallel to each other. Also, a DVD cover generally has pieces of plastic that are pressed together or welded together, if you will, by heat. And on the edge of a DVD cover, there's a rim where the, where the, the machine presses the two together. When you powder and lift off of a DVD cover, you've got a straight edge, but then that rim is a black line because it's indented into the plastic. And we don't see that in Folian 1. Third, a DVD cover is plastic, which has the inherent um, characteristic of, of clouding with the powder. The powder will stick all over the surface of a DVD cover. So when you take a lift from it, then you get a, a solid background noise of powder. That was completely missing on Folian 1. Forensic expert David Clatso, you met him in the first episode. He too was initially hired by the family as an independent forensic investigator. Initially, he also believed there had been an innocent mix-up. We went out to Inga's flat and we spent a bit of time there trying to find a surface where the folene could have been lifted and mistakenly misidentified as coming from a DVD cover. We were trying to genuinely clear up a puzzle for us as to how you can get a curved line or a pair of curved lines off a DVD cover which had only straight lines on it. If this had been a simple switch of, by virtue of the fact that they hadn't marked them up correctly on the site, if it had been a simple switch of a glass and a DVD, there should have been the corresponding uh, DVD print marked glass, and there wasn't. One of Fred's defense advocates, Terry Price, was suspicious from the start. Why is it that there are no other fingerprints on that piece of folio except Fred's? Where are the store clerk's fingerprints? Where are Inga's fingerprints? And most interestingly, we sent our experts in Cape Town to that video shop. I think three or four experts, and they each took out 20 or 30 videos. And all they did is they took folians from those 20 or 30 videos. And every single one of those folians was filthy with fingerprints. 
as you can imagine. To clear up the discrepancy, Fred's defence team asked to examine the actual DVD cover from which Folian 1 was supposedly lifted. They would very quickly be able to verify whether or not Fred's fingerprint had indeed been left on it. But police investigators had an astonishing admission. They didn't have the DVD cover. They said they had taken it back to the video store. The fact that the police returned the DVD cover to the video store uh, was baffling to me. I cannot imagine evidence in a murder case being so carelessly disposed of. That, that was incomprehensible. When the DVD cover was returned to the store, I don't believe the police attached any significance to it whatsoever. If I'm correct, and if Folian 1 was lifted from a drinking glass, then the implication is there were no fingerprints on the DVD cover in the first place. And if there were no fingerprints on the DVD cover, then why keep it? Why keep it at all? So the fact that it was returned to the rental company tends to support the idea that the DVD cover had no evidentiary value in the mind of the police at that time. So was this a case of sloppy police incompetence or something more sinister? If this had been an honest mistake, then I would have expected to find a lift among the other 10, which was labeled drinking glass, but which had uh, the aspects of a DVD cover present in that lift. Officer Schwartz subsequently testified that he had taken some lifts and thrown them away, but that was following the deposition where he said he had not. Uh, nothing supported the idea of honest mistake, and everything that I read in regards to that was consistent with some type of cover-up. In my conclusion in the report, I stated my belief that this was intentional fabrication of evidence, intentional fraud. Klatso says the police had flouted a number of standard practices, and while he initially also believed the matching of Fred's fingerprint on the DVD cover was an honest mistake, a bit of digging changed his mind. There's another problem about it, and that is this that standard forensic practice is that you photograph the items that you are dealing with in situ. No photographs were taken of that DVD cover. They gave the DVD cover back to the DVD shop. The video shop had it and it was then lost to anybody. The negative imprint of Foline 1 would have been on it. And in order to get away from the fact that there was no evidence of Foline 1 on that DVD cover, they had to give it back, which to me is the strongest element proving that it was a malicious act uh, of fabrication of that evidence rather than a genuine blunder on the part of the police. It's easy to think of the police as doing genuine blunders because they're badly trained and badly qualified uh, right throughout. But in this particular instance, it transcends that and it becomes, in my view, an act of malicious forgery. And I'm not alone in that view. Private investigator Daryl Else says it was clear that things were not adding up. 
Police officer Elton John Schwartz was responsible for lifting and labelling the fingerprints the day after Inga's murder. The fact that uh, Constable Schwartz, on his original file, recorded that he'd lifted 12 prints and then crossed it out and changed it to reflect that he'd lifted 11 prints only is suspicious in itself. The photographer who had taken photographs then further adds to the confusion by having indicated that he took 24 photographs of 12 prints that were lifted in the Ingolotz flat. He then later also changes the number of photographs taken and that to 22. My question therefore is what happened to the 12th print and what happened to photographs 23 and 24? At the start of the trial, even the state recognised their fingerprint evidence was flawed. But they weren't too concerned. After all, they had Fred's shoe print and blood on Inga's bathroom floor. To make sure that the shoe print evidence was bulletproof, the state made the decision to consult with an international expert. Superintendent Bruce Bartholomew was one of the investigators on the case. His expertise was in shoe print analysis. But to back up his claims that the blood mark found in Inga's bathroom was an exact match of Fred's squash shoe, he paid a visit to the world's authority, Bill Bodziak from Florida, United States. Bodziak had written books on shoe print examination and had testified against O.J. Simpson in his civil trial. Ten years later, co-producer of this series, Matthew Brown, made the same trip to Florida. Uh, Bruce Bartholomew came to my office here in, uh, I believe it was June 30th, 2006. Uh, we agreed to meet for four hours, and he brought with him uh, Fred Vanderweifer's high-tech shoes, and he also brought two compact discs with him. The disc that was supposedly having all of the information about the case, the full-size photographs and information, that didn't work, so we weren't able to extract any information that he brought. And that left us with some very small three by five inch black and white photographs of the blood mark. And we had to work with that information only. Despite the fact that it had been a costly exercise at taxpayers' expense, it quickly became evident that Bartholomew was not adequately prepared for the consultation with Bodziak. Mr. Bartholomew, I said, are you in possession of the test impressions that you made of these shoes? And he said, no, I haven't made any test impressions. And I said, well, how can you, you've already reached a conclusion. How can you know if you haven't made a test impression to support that theory? And he said, well, the court would not allow him to make these test impressions. And I said, well, you've already issued your report. So certainly now, 
the court should allow you to do this. And he, he kept using the court as an excuse that it was they would not let him do that. Of course, uh, his examination should have taken place long before the court was involved in the case. But I was trying to be diplomatic and not be argumentative. Bodziak did not think the blood mark had come off Fred's shoe. Furthermore, he didn't think it had come off any shoe. Bruce Bartholomew's opinion was that the blood mark was made by the right high-tech shoe of Fred Vanderpfeiffer. He made what, what is known as a positive identification. In other words, that shoe and no other shoe could have made that blood mark. My conclusion was there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that you could associate with either one of the high-tech shoes of Fred Vanderweifer and the blood mark at the Ingolotz bathroom scene. David Klatso was not surprised Bartholomew's theory was rejected. Bruce Bartholomew was a captain in the South African police force who had no scientific training whatsoever. Uh, he was trained in-house in a kind of apprenticeship role, and that's how you get this kind of nonsense that Bartholomew offered. There had to be unusual explanations like how did Fred get from wherever he picked up the blood on his shoe to the bathroom without leaving a trail? How come there was no mark in the blood where Fred had stepped? All of that tells me that we're dealing with people who have not a single iota of knowledge about how to conduct a forensic investigation. Bodziak had expected Bartholomew to be disappointed when he rejected his analysis of the evidence. Bruce Bartholomew's reaction uh, was, I thought, very unusual. If I had come thousands of miles from South Africa to the United States, at great expense, and in, a, in an important homicide case, even though I didn't know the, the details of the case, uh, if I had come that far to consult with someone who I considered worthy of consulting with, and they totally disagree with me, I would show some evidence of being upset, being concerned, being shocked. Uh, and I saw none of those reactions from Superintendent Bartholomew. He seemed somewhat uh, unaffected by anything I said. We kept the conversation, of course, very friendly and diplomatic. There was no debate or cross-examination of his points. He was here with his wife. Uh, they were in somewhat of a hurry because they were on their way to Disney World. I, I didn't expect to, to hear any more from Bruce Bartholomew or about the case. And bear in mind that I didn't even know the name Inga Lotz at this time. I didn't know the name Fred Vanderweifer. But this would not be the last of his interactions with the South African justice system. Soon, he would have to defend his own reputation. Next on the Ingolotz story, A Miscarriage of Justice, a shocking revelation is made that will prompt a world expert to travel thousands of miles to defend his name. I think in the beginning they started off genuinely thinking that Fred was the culprit. When the evidence became weaker and weaker, they started to manipulate the evidence in order to achieve their original suspicion. He was going to be in prison forever. There is nothing more difficult than defending an innocent man. And that is so true in this case. 
This episode was produced by Matthew Brown and Catherine Rice for News24. Audio recording by Matt Gare, Craig Reinefeldt, and Luke Peters. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Multimedia editors, Charlene Roert and Nokutula Maniati. News24 editor in chief, Adrian Besson. For other News24 podcasts, visit our multimedia page where you can find Exodus, White Collar Heist, and Missing Matthew. For more exclusive content, subscribe to news24.com. <laughs>